I've talked with many people who are also uh, zealous uh, for apologetics. Uh, and uh, apologetics is the, the field of, of study of how we defend our faith. Uh, how do we uh, defend it against uh, questions raised by skeptics and, uh, and opponents of Christianity? Uh, and there are going to be uh, equipping our classes uh, in the future on that field of apologetics. Uh, we may call it our spiritual self-defense classes. Uh, but uh, what about right now? Anybody ever feel uh, unprepared uh, to, to go and, and defend our faith? When, when those around us uh, in the world, those who have doubts and who are skeptical, they may uh, raise objections or bring accusations against Christ and against his church. Uh, has anybody ever felt unprepared in those conversations? Yeah, so you're like, okay, Pastor Thomas, you've said that we're going to, to work to equip you all in the, the future, but what do we do right now? Right? How, how do we do? Uh, how do we study uh, and be prepared for these conversations right now? And and that's why I'm glad that we're just going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, because what we get to see this morning is uh, the the perfect and the greatest apologist at work. Uh, we get to see our Lord Jesus Christ defending Himself uh, and bringing accusations against those who are. Uh, prosecuting him. So we get to see the master uh, apologist at work this morning. And whenever we see a master at work, there is much for us to learn. There's much for us to uh, observe. And this morning we're going to be looking at, at John chapter 5. And we're going to take a, a larger portion of scripture this morning. We're going to uh, work through verses 31 all the way through the end of the chapter. Okay? Uh, and what we're going to see in this portion of scripture, what we have seen thus far is this is taken on the, the, a courtroom drama, okay, that, that Jesus has been uh, brought up with charges against him. The, the Jewish leaders have come to Jesus and accused him of breaking the Sabbath, and they have accused him of blasphemy because he has made himself uh, to be the Son of God. And if you're going to claim to be the Son of God, uh, in the, the Jewish way of thinking, you're saying that you are equal with God. Uh, and they brought these charges against him, and now we're seeing Jesus' defense, uh, his, his case defending himself against the accusations of the Jewish leaders. Uh, and as we're going to see Jesus defending himself before an unbelieving people, and the Jewish leaders are, uh, by definition, unbelieving because they will reject the Lord Jesus, Jesus is going to move from making arguments now to presenting evidence in this portion of Scripture. And more specifically, he's going to call witnesses to the witness stand uh, in this courtroom drama uh, today. Uh, and uh, what we are going to see is how we should defend ourselves, how we should defend Christ. How are we to do apologetics? How are we to defend our faith? Uh, because we too are living in an unbelieving world and surrounded by those who do not believe in Christ. And they have questions. Uh, and we're going to see how Jesus responds today is going to be instructional uh, for our own understanding of how to defend our faith and how to speak of Jesus and about uh, the Christian faith when others question. Now, what we're going to see this morning in this passage are going to be three guidelines of, hey, when we speak and we defend our faith against charges from the world, three guidelines to keep in mind and, and to utilize and follow. And so uh, we're going to read each portion of Scripture as we come to it. But look with me uh, at verses 31 and 32 uh, to begin with. We're going to see the first guideline there. And that first guideline is going to be that we are to understand that truth needs to be validated. They understand that truth needs to be validated. Look with me at those verses. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And uh, what we've seen in previous weeks is that Jesus has has already argued that he is equal with God the Father. Uh, and what we've seen in this four big areas, he said that he's equal with God the Father in works, uh, in power, in authority, and then in the honor due to him, he is equal. Uh, so Jesus has made his his case, and now he is, uh, he is presenting evidence for that. But before he gets to that, he's going to to make a statement basically saying that his own claims need to be validated. He's made some uh, some lofty uh, assertions. Uh, and really, anybody could make those assertions, right? Anybody here could claim to be the Son of God. And you're like, okay, well, how do you, how do you prove and demonstrate that? That's something that needs to be verified. And with what Jesus has been saying, that, that he has the delegated authority from God to give eternal life, and that he is the one who uh, will be the one who raises the dead on the last day and then righteously judges all people, assigning them to an eternal destiny, either of life or condemnation. Jesus says, well, this needs to be validated. And that his own testimony is not uh, true in and of itself. Says that there needs to be something more to that. And he might be referring to Old Testament law, which says that, uh, that every fact needs to be verified by two or three witnesses. It says that back in uh, Deuteronomy 19.15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Now, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Now, that verse is speaking about the need for multiple witnesses in order to condemn someone on a charge, but now that same principle could be carried over to the idea of verifying someone's testimony. Uh, and so Jesus could be alluding to that, but, but I think there's something more. I don't know that Jesus is referring directly to that, because Jesus isn't saying that his testimony isn't valid. He's saying it's not necessarily true. There's a, there's a difference there, and there's a bigger concept. And I think Jesus is, is speaking about the truthfulness of his own testimony. Uh, and when we, when we take in everything that Jesus has, has said in recent verses, okay, when Jesus ha- has said that he has been sent by God the Father, that he is equal with the Father, uh, and that he has all of this authority and, and is united with God the Father, if he's going to make all of these claims, there's really only one way for that to be validated. And how is that? God the Father has to speak. God the Father has to be the one to validate these claims. The very nature of what Jesus is saying demands further validation. Uh, and not just validation from, from men, but validation from the one that, that Jesus is claiming to be united and equal to. And indeed, in verse 32, in verse 31, he's saying, hey, my testimony isn't enough. In verse 32, he says, there is another who bears witness about me. And when he says that, he is speaking about God the Father. He's saying, hey, God has borne testimony about who Jesus is. And everything that that God the Father has testified about the Son is true. That is Jesus' assertion here in verses 31 and 32. But, But in making these statements about his own testimony, and saying, hey, it's not valid with what I'm claiming unless it can be validated by God the Father... Jesus is just using basic logic. Uh, And by appealing to reason, he's including reason as a way of validating what is true. 
Now, and I want to clarify that. The reason is a way of validating what is true, but it is not the final authority. Our final authority is the Word of God and always will be. It must be that God's Word is our final authority. But the Word of God is always going to be in perfect harmony with logic and sound reasoning, and it's always going to be in harmony with what is true. And as we see Jesus appealing to logic here, he's going to appeal to evidence later. We, we see that, that as Christians, we are called to think. Uh, we're not called to, to check our coats uh, and our brains at the door of the church. Okay? When, when you come here, you're expected to, to be ready to, to wrestle with big ideas. When you open your Bibles, hopefully each and every morning, you're called to, to come ready to think and wrestle with the truth of God and to understand what it is saying about God, the world around us, and ourselves. But many unbelievers feel like we do have what they would call just a blind faith. That we have a blind faith. That, that we believe things without thinking. That, that we just believe something hook, line, and sinker without evaluating or trying to validate whether or not uh, this claim is true or false. And some of us might have a blind faith. And some of us might have accepted certain uh, things to be true uh, about Scripture, but we don't know why those things are true. And that's part of the reason that we feel ill-equipped to defend our faith, right? Say, so, well, well, I know somebody has mentioned that some other point in time, and, and I'm just kind of repeating what they said, but I'm not necessarily convinced of that in my own soul. But we cannot have a blind faith. We must have a faith that is validated and rooted upon truth and the truth of God's Word. We cannot give into or and I guess meet this uh, this characterization of the world around us that we just have this blind faith. We cannot be uh, like uh, this this uh, story of a Venetian author named uh, Nicola Zeno, who in 1558 he wrote this book uh, entitled uh, Della Scopramento, and the, in this book he he wrote trying to to make a name for his family and for his city state. Uh, of Venice. Uh, and so as he, he writes this book in 1558 and he's going to embellish some facts uh, and then he's going to just outright invent some others. Uh, and uh, for instance, he claimed that his ancestors had discovered the new world about a hundred years prior to uh, Columbus coming and discovering the new world. He said his ancestors discovered the new world in the 1380s. Uh, and then he also said that they had discovered a large island of uh, Frisland just south of Iceland. And he just flat out made that up. Okay? Uh, and he just invented this, uh, but he wrote very convincingly in his book about the details of this island. And he wrote convincingly, uh, and he even drew a little map of where the island was located. Uh, and... Uh, People in Europe were so convinced that for most of the 16th and 17th century, all of Europe believed that the island of Frisland existed just south of Iceland. Uh, and they believed that, not because anyone had ever been there. There were stories of many sailors who uh, thought they had seen it from a distance. And actually, uh, in 1580, one of uh, Queen Elizabeth's advisors went so far as to claim the imaginary island for England. Uh, and so you have these people who are blindly accepting that this island existed, even though no one has ever been there. But they see it on a map and they say, oh, well, it must be true. But again, we have to understand that everything needs to be validated. And that's the principle that Jesus himself is saying here. His own testimony, if he's going to claim to be united with God the Father and equal with God the Father, it, that, that claim requires validation from God the Father 
himself. And so we have to understand and believe what is true and what can be validated as true. God always calls us to think and God always asks or always gives us evidence for our faith as well. And we need to to trust that and believe that. That if there are some things that you aren't necessarily convinced of or have questions about, that there are answers to those things. Uh, There are always answers to your questions. And I always tell the youth students that don't ever be afraid to come and ask questions of Scripture. Scripture has answers to every question that you could ask. Uh, And we can always approach God with our questions, with our doubts, seeking His answers and His truth. Uh, But what we are called to believe and see and understand and behold here is that Jesus is the truth. And we must be convinced of that. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying his word needs to be validated. But on the, the other hand, that everything that Jesus is saying has been validated by God the Father uh, in a variety of ways. But what we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John is that John is going to hold Jesus up as the very embodiment of truth. This began back in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1:17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then famously in John 14:6, Jesus said uh, to His disciples that, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we must see and behold and be convinced that Jesus himself is the very source and embodiment of all wisdom and of all truth. But at that same time, we are called to be thinkers. We are called to to seek out validation for what is said and always be looking to God's word as the ultimate authority even as we make a defense for our faith. We must be willing to correct others that that attack that, and we must uh, especially correct those who just say, oh, you just have a blind faith. You believe without thinking. That's not what we are called to do and to be as Christians. We are called to validate truths and to believe what is validated. And that's, again, of what when when we see the way Jesus teaches, we should be even more amazed. Because Jesus uses logic flawlessly. Uh, and, and he will argue and present his case and, then, and lead us to, uh, to how we should think and how we should argue. And what we see here is, yes, truth must be validated. And, and this works both, both ways, for us and for those who come with questions. And, and that's great in apologetic conversations. I, I love to, to turn the tables and just begin to ask people, of, so, so why do you believe that? Right? Are you making any assumptions there? What, what, what proof do you have for what you believe? Uh, and little by little, what they begin to see is everything that they've been uh, taught in, in school, everything that they've been proclaimed, uh, especially about evolution. Because if you look, there's no evidence for large-scale uh, macro evolution. So in talking with people, you just begin to ask these questions. So, so show me the evidence for a change of one species to another. Oh, well, well, we don't have that. Oh, that's the missing link. Exactly. So by accepting that, you are accepting that not on the basis of facts and evidence, but on the basis of faith. Uh, But we need to believe what is validated. And what we see more and more is that Scripture is validated by the world around us, and Scripture validates itself. So guideline number one is that truth must be validated. And the second guideline that we're going to see this morning is in verses 33 through 39. 
Uh, and the guideline for our apologetic conversations would be this, that we can be assured that your faith can be validated. Because Jesus, on the one hand, is going to say, hey, my testimony doesn't count here. My testimony isn't true. But then he's going to give evidence. He's going to call witnesses and demonstrate the validity of his own arguments and to show how God the Father has borne testimony concerning him. Look with me at those verses now, 33 through 39. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That simple question somebody may have asked you at some point or will ask you in the future, why should I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is Jesus' answer to that question. That's what he's arguing. Why should the, the Pharisees, why should these Jewish leaders receive him and believe in him as being the Son of God, as being everything that he claims to be? Here's his answer. Jesus is going to, to look and, and demonstrate how God the Father has approved and validated all that Jesus has said and done. In verse 32, we saw Jesus pointing to, to this fact. And then uh, we're going to do things a little bit out of order. In verses 37 and 38, he's going to reemphasize and say, Hey, God the Father has testified about God the Son, about Jesus. Verses 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Okay, and, uh, and so Jesus is saying, hey, God the Father has already testified that I am his son. And you may ask, well, when, when did that happen? Did, did we miss that somewhere in John's gospel? Well, John doesn't include it. It may be referring to uh, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke record uh, what takes place. And here's Matthew uh, verses, or chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Because when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus could be referring to uh, that declaration of God the Father at his baptism, or he could be referring to this very list of items that we're looking at right here. It's not clear uh, what he is alluding to initially there. But, but then Jesus also says that, that the Jews, in speaking of this, this generation, says that they have not heard God's voice nor seen the form of God. He also says they do not have the word of God abiding in them. Right, uh, And so he, he's going to explain all of this and the idea of there, there were some in the Old Testament uh, who saw God in some form or another. 
Uh, they beheld God. They heard his voice. Uh, and the, the entire nation of Israel, when God the Father came and descended upon Mount Sinai, uh, and, and darkness covered the mountain, the nation was, was terrified. Uh, because initially God called everybody up and they're like, no, no, thank you. Uh, we'll send Moses and then Moses, you let us know what happens, okay? Uh, and, and so they're just absolutely terrified. And I think to, to a certain degree what Jesus is saying here is the, the Israelites who did not see God, did not hear his voice audibly, they received the law that was given to them at Mount Sinai, right? But here, this generation of Jews who see Jesus, who see God in the flesh before them, do they receive Christ? No. Uh, they, they reject uh, God as he stands before them, teaching them. And, and I think in, in, in all of this, again, it's a, it's a condemnation, but it's also showing how God the Father has borne testimony about the Son. Uh, and uh, really, God the Father, uh, rather than seeing, I guess, all of these witnesses that Jesus is going to list off, rather than seeing them as, as separate witnesses, we really need to see that, that these are witnesses that, that God has empowered and is working through. Really, all of these are going to be the testimony of God the Father through a variety of means, rather than separate witnesses. And the first one uh, is God the Father, as we see. And then Jesus is going to point to in verses 33 through 35 he's going to point to john the baptist right he says you sent to john and he has borne witness to the truth not that the testimony that i receive is from man but i say these things so that you may be saved he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light so jesus is going to point to john the baptist and say remember him you sent to him to ask him questions and to find out about me and who John the Baptist himself was. And Jesus acknowledges that John has borne witness about him and the, the way the Greek verb tense works there, the idea that John gave testimony about Jesus and that testimony is still significant. It has ongoing importance even until now. He says that, that John's testimony, when that little phrase, that not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. What Jesus is saying is the testimony of John doesn't necessarily validate everything that Jesus is saying. Okay? What he's saying is that the testimony of John was given for others, so that others would know to look to Jesus, but then Jesus still has to validate his own claims. That's where John's claims were for our salvation, for the, identity, the identification of the Messiah. But Jesus is not dependent upon the testimony of John the Baptist to prove his deity and everything that he's saying here in John 5. And Jesus points to John as a lamp that the nation of Israel rejoiced in the light of for a time. And in calling John a lamp, and more literally in the Greek, it's the lamp. The idea of a lamp, does, does a lamp burn forever? No. Uh, and, and John is to be contrasted. John is a lamp. Jesus is the light. And there's a difference there and a contrasting there uh, with, within this gospel. Making clear that, that John was going to shine for a time, but he was eventually going to, to exit the scene. And so Jesus points to, to God the Father working through this forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist. Then in verse 36, we're going to see Jesus contrast John the Baptist with another witness, a third witness uh, that he's going to call to the witness stand. 
Now, and that's going to be the miraculous signs that Jesus has already performed. Verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And Jesus is pointing to these miraculous signs that he has already done throughout the nation of Israel as being a part of God the Father's testimony about him. And what's remarkable is the Jews could not deny that these miracles were taking place. Right? How do you deny uh, that a man, as we saw earlier in John chapter 5, what, what kicked all of this controversy off, that a man who had been lame for 38 years was suddenly healed and then is seen walking around and carrying his mattress? How do you fake that? Right? He's been there 38 years. Uh, that, that's an easy miracle to validate. And what we see over and over again in John's Gospel is that everybody was acknowledging that Jesus was doing miraculous signs. And back in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus, as he comes to him at night, uh, says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The Jewish leaders understood that God was somehow connected with Jesus and empowering his ministry. Later on in John chapter 9, we're going to see a, a man who was born blind, completely healed. It never happened in all of human history. And that man is going to bear testimony. And he says this to the Jewish leaders. He says, if this man, speaking of Jesus, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But the implication, because of the miracles that we're seeing Jesus do, he is coming from God. Later on in John chapter 10, Jesus uh, is going to argue and he, he's going to say, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And, and so we see over and over again in John's gospel this theme that what the things that Jesus does demonstrate and authenticate, they validate everything that he is claiming. Uh, and there are all of these eyewitnesses, so it's really easy to question the miracles of Jesus now, and many people do. But back then, it would have been impossible to do because everybody in Israel has basically seen him do one miracle or another or heard about it or know somebody who was there when a miracle took place. And these works that Jesus performed validate all of his claims. But that's not even the final witness that Jesus points to. He points to a fourth witness in verse 39. That's the Old Testament scripture through which the Father has spoken about the Son. Verse 39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says that the Jews had meticulously studied the Old Testament. That they had, they had searched out the Scriptures. They knew them uh, forwards, backwards, sideways, uh, they knew all of the, the little details. They knew how many words were in each book. They would write it at the end of each book. They, they were so passionate and zealous to learn the Old Testament, but they, they missed the big picture. Right? They, they were so sure about how many words were in each book, but they missed the, the whole forest. Because what is the Old Testament really about? It's a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. It's a giant arrow pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Son of God, the one promised uh, in through all of these prophecies in, in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, God gave 60 major prophecies regarding the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, the one that He was going to send. Uh, and, and they would predict many small details regarding the Messiah, everything from uh, where he would be born to what family he would be born to, where he would live and what he would accomplish, and amazingly, how he would die. Go and read Isaiah 53. Uh, and Isaiah wrote that 700 years before Christ was crucified. And, and we have the, the, the manuscript copy, copies to, to demonstrate that. Like, how does that happen? It's not a, not a coincidence. It's not an accident. So of these, these 60 major prophecies in the Old Testament, okay, do you know what the odds are of a single person just uh, meeting eight of those 60 prophecies? It's one times 10 to the power of 17, or one in 100 quadrillion. Okay, to, to give you a visualization of that, of the probability of somebody just fulfilling eight of those 60 prophecies, if you took silver dollars and you covered the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, okay, uh, and then I just told you, okay, find this one silver dollar in particular and then bring it back to me, right? What would you say? Like, that's nuts. That's impossible, right? Uh, so think about that. And that's just eight of the 60, Guess how many Jesus fulfills? All 60. Now, is that a coincidence? Is that an accident? Right? What's the likelihood that you go and find that, that silver dollar two feet deep in all of Texas just randomly? You just go in the, hey, is this it? Nope. It's not going to happen. But this is, this is what Jesus says. The scriptures point to and validate him as the Messiah as the Son of God, as God's chosen King, spoken about in so many ways. The Word of God, the Scriptures, validate everything that Jesus has said about Himself. And yet sometimes, what are we afraid of? We're afraid we don't have answers and we don't have evidence for why we believe in Jesus. And is that the case? No, we have an abundance of evidence. We have so much, almost don't even know what to do with. And what's remarkable here, Jesus is, is listing out all of these evidences. And are the Jews unfamiliar with, with these evidences? No, they know all of them. And so that, that tells us something, right? Right? That their unbelief is not an intellectual issue. That their unbelief is, is not a matter of, of misunderstanding. It's not a matter of, of comprehension of some big theological idea. Unbelief, and this is always how it's presented in the Gospel of John and always in Scripture, unbelief is always a moral issue. Right? It, it's always a matter of the heart and it's always a matter of the will. It's always a decision on the part of somebody to reject God, regardless of the evidence. Romans 1 says, uh, you look at the creation around us, uh, and it is completely obvious that somebody has created the solar system and the sun and, and gravity. And you, look, uh, you can look at the, the big picture of the amazingness of creation around us and say, none of this happened on accident. And then you can look at, just look at yourself. 
right? How much is going on in your body right now? And it just becomes clear that, that you were not an accident. That there was, you were created with design. And again, there, there's always an abundance of evidence, but unbelief is that rejection and that denial of evidence. And so as, as believers, we can, we can be encouraged and we can rest assured that there is an abundance of evidence for us that, that our faith can be validated to support each and every one of the claims of Jesus, to support the resurrection and every other fact that the Bible presents to us. The Bible has never been proven wrong. I always try and say, oh, this archaeological find is uh, demonstrating this and this and this, but guess what happens over time? That archaeological find was incorrect or fraud or all of these things, and they point to all of these other things. Well, we have no evidence of this and this and this, but uh, for years and years they said that there was no evidence for uh, King David. Years and years, and guess what? Then in 1995, guess what they found? Uh, Some other little tablet that spoke about the house of David. So again, the evidence is not the issue. Always a moral decision. The issue is not the, the quantity or the quality of evidence. The issue is always what's going on in the human heart. And so the question is not will you embrace the evidence, but the, will, you, will you look to Jesus in faith? Will you trust him rather than yourself? The Old and New Testament speaks with perfect harmony and with a single unified voice that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life after being born of a virgin and then who was unjustly condemned and unjustly crucified. But Jesus submitted to all of that so that he might be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment for our sins. Because on the cross he endured the penalty that you and I charged. We rebelled against God, and the result of that is death. And Jesus endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled and redeemed, brought into the family of God. And so now we are all faced with a decision, not just an intellectual one, but a moral one, a matter of our heart and our will, of will we look to Jesus in faith? Will we turn from our life of sin and a life ruled by self, and will we bow the knee to Christ? That's what we are getting to to think about and contemplate this month, right? The, the season of Advent, of Jesus coming, humbling himself, born in a manger. And yet others came and understood who he was. What did the shepherds do when they came to him? They worshipped, they bowed. What did the... The wise men, the magi do when they came to him. They worshipped. And that's what we are all called to do. And if you're here this morning and you've been maybe wrestling with the claims of Christianity, Christianity, you've been wrestling with who Jesus is, if you've been maybe wrestling with, do I want to bow the knee? You may have the intellectual knowledge and you're wrestling with, do I really want to do this? I would urge you, I would plead with you, beg you, to look to Jesus in faith. Be forgiven. Be reconciled. Let the stain of your sin be washed away. Let the burden of your guilt be lifted off of you. And enjoy a renewed relationship with God the Father. Confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness, not in your own merits, but because of what Jesus has done. 
All of this that Jesus has claimed and everything that we believe about him has implications for our life. As we see Jesus here and how he is defending himself, he's using reason. He's saying, hey, truth needs to be validated. And then here's all of the validation for it. Right? But we are, we are urged and, and taught of if we're going to speak about our faith, if we're going to speak about Christ well before an unbelieving world, we can point to evidence. We can stand firm on all that the scriptures teach and how it validates our faith. But then we must also do as Jesus does in the last few verses of this chapter where we see our, our third guideline for how to speak with and interact with others. This third guideline is going to be in verses 40 through 47 and it's going to be that we should call people to account for their unbelief. Look with me at these verses. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now before we dive into these verses, I kind of want to take a step back and explain a little bit of what's happening here. Okay? Uh, now in our American judicial system, there's, uh, in a criminal case, there, there is a, a defendant and a prosecutor. Uh, and the, the prosecutor is bringing a case against the defendant. So he's having charges against him. Uh, and the prosecutor comes and presents evidence uh, against the defendant. Uh, and if the defendant is found to be innocent, they say, okay, he's innocent. Uh, and everybody kind of, it, he's declared innocent and everybody goes their way, right? But it's a little bit different in, uh, in a Jewish court in the first century because they had something that's called reverse prosecution, Okay, what that means is that if, if somebody was declared to be innocent, then they could turn around and then bring charges against those who were accusing them initially. If, if you turn back with me uh, in uh, your Bibles to, to Deuteronomy chapter 19, we see a little bit of this explained. Deuteronomy chapter 19 Beginning in verse 15, we see this, this standard of witness. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. You're like, okay, we've already seen a little bit of that maybe. But then verse 16, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
So if you were to, if I were to bring charges against you uh, in a Jewish court of law and say, hey, you're guilty of these things and, and you're proven to be innocent, you could then turn around and, and bring charges against me. And that's what, exactly what we see taking place here. Th- that Jesus moves from, from being on the, the defense to the offense. Uh, and he, because everything that he just cited, all of the witnesses that he just pointed to, work for him and against his opposition, right? Because if all of those witnesses bear truth and, and validity to all that he has said, that's an indictment upon the Jewish leaders who are rejecting him. That's an indictment upon the Jewish leaders who are attacking him and bringing these charges against him. And as I pointed out, what, what's amazing here is that the, the Jews were familiar with all of the witnesses that he pointed to. Again, they acknowledged John the Baptist as a prophet. The whole nation of Israel did. In fact, in one of the other gospel accounts, uh, it records and, and says that uh, the Jewish leaders uh, felt that if they, to the crowds, said that John the Baptist wasn't a prophet, they were afraid that the, cra- the crowds would, would rise up and stone them and kill them. And that's how convinced the entire nation was that John the Baptist was a prophet. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? And he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Jews knew that John was a prophet. The Jews knew that Jesus' miracles came from God. And the Jews knew the Scriptures. So they acknowledged each of those messengers, but what did they reject about Jesus from each one of them? The, the message. They did not want to accept any truth that held up Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God. They rejected all of that. And in verse 40, Jesus, really Jesus brings the real issue to light. Because what does he say? He say in 39, he said, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, what do they refuse to do? Jews know all of these things, and yet they refuse to bow the knee. They refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is. And so Jesus is going to bring this indictment in verse 40, and then in the remaining verses, he just kind of continues to peel back the, the, the layers of heart motives behind uh, the Jewish hostility to him. Verses 41 and 42, see that the reason they have no genuine, or they, they reject Jesus, is they have no genuine love for God. That's quite the indictment, right? It says you have no love for God within you. Then in verse 43, Jesus points out their own inconsistency. He says, hey, they receive other people who come in their own name, but when Jesus comes to them in the name of the Father, what do they do? They reject him. Then in verse 44, you see the Jewish leaders refuse to believe in Jesus because they desire and pursue the wrong glory. See, they, re- they, they desire, they love to receive glory from men. They don't have, want the, the glory of God. They have a, a mutual admiration committee here. Uh, and they love patting each other on the back and telling each one another how good and how great they are. And that's really all that they desire. They have no desire to, to glorify God and to receive praise and honor from God. It's all about pleasing man. They worship man. They're deluded into believing their own opinions and the opinions of others about what really matters. 
Then in verse 45, Jesus really brings the hammer down on them. Because to these Jewish leaders, Moses was the most revered Old Testament figure. Later on uh, in the gospel, they're going to say that they are descendants, they are children of Moses, they are followers of Moses, disciples of Moses. And Jesus says, you're going to be surprised. In essence, when these Jewish leaders who revered Moses, when they, when they come before God at the judgment, rather than, than Moses being there to stand up and defend them, what is Moses going to be doing? He's going to be accusing them. He's going to be accusing them because they have rejected everything that Moses has said. It include Moses as a, a fifth witness, so to speak. That, that everything Moses wrote, he wrote about Jesus. Everything that Moses wrote was intended to, to show Israel their own sinfulness. Again, you can't read through Leviticus and be like, I can do this. You, you read through Leviticus, you just get this overwhelming sense of who can stand before God. Exactly the point. Jesus says Moses is going to be the one to accuse you, to condemn you. And ultimately, Jesus rightly comes to this evaluation. He says, you really don't believe what Moses wrote. Because if they believe what Moses wrote, they would also believe in Jesus. They would also trust and rightly identify who Jesus is. So Jesus goes on the offensive. He doesn't let these leaders off the hook. He doesn't just say, hey, your, your rejection, you just need to understand certain things. He doesn't say that. He gets right down to the morality of their rejection. A hardness of heart. Heart filled with hatred for God. And there's a, there's a famous uh, saying that's used in a, a variety of endeavors. You may have heard it. It says that a good, uh, def- or the best defense is a good, talk to me, yeah, a good offense. So we see a little bit of here in what Jesus is doing. In, in, in basketball and in, in football, if you control the offense, if you control the ball, you naturally limit what the opposing team can do. Uh, in, in military history, there's a ton of examples of uh, a strategic offensive of going on the offense and you don't have to worry about defense. Let the other person worry about defense. That's famously in World War I, that's what the Germans wanted to do. They wanted to attack France, defeat France, knock them out of the war, and then train everybody over to, to fight the Russians on the Eastern Front. There's also martial arts forms that emphasize attacking over defense. Uh, Wing Chun, which is the, the form of Kung Fu that Bruce Lee fought with. The Wing Chun uses a maxim that says the hand which strikes also blocks. And there's some things for us to take note of there. To notice how Jesus defends himself and how we should again go about our own way of defending our faith, of doing apologetics. That we can, we can be offensive and defensive at the same time. And we need to take the offensive. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. When I say take the offensive, I am not saying go and punch anybody. I am not saying going and and being bombastic or harsh or angry. 
but rather we are to be offensive in the sense of giving a kind and loving response that speaks the truth of what 1 Peter 3.15 says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. That's how we are to to answer those who come and question us, those who come and attack us, who, who ask us to, to defend our faith. We answer, but we do it with gentleness and with respect. And another way of looking at kind of the offensive and the defensive of our conversations is, is seeing apologetics and evangelism as two sides of the same coin. Okay, apologetics uh, is the defense of our faith, and the evangelism is the the proclamation of our faith. One's offense and one's defense. Uh, and we should always include both. The, uh, and that's really what we see Jesus doing here. Right? Verses 33 to 39, he's defending himself. This is how you know these things are true. Verses 40 through 47, that's evangelism. That's Jesus getting to the heart of the Jewish leaders and saying, hey, the issue here is not that you don't know what Moses said. The issue here is that you have a hard heart that you have rejected everything that Moses wrote. That, that's really the issue here. Apologetics and evangelism. And that's what we need to, to learn to do, is to tie both of those together. And when we're in those conversations that we are defending our faith, it is okay, and in fact we should, get to that point where we begin to challenge the person that we're speaking with we begin to challenge their thinking. We challenge what the real issue is at hand. And really what we, what we see here is, is Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. And as Jesus closes the, the discourse in these verses, he really highlights the, the importance of believing the word of God. Right? The importance of faith. Not just knowing, but believing. Okay, because what did the Jews have an abundance of? Knowledge. Right? That wasn't the issue. Jesus doesn't say, go back and study the Old Testament more. Not what he says. He says, you don't believe. They know it, but they do not believe it. Knowledge should always lead to faith, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, and I wanted to just to highlight a little bit of what we do in our growth groups. Okay? Now, as we, we gather together in our small groups during the week, we, we, we're all in the same reading plan. We have an Advent reading plan this month. But then we come together. Uh, we encourage people to, to write down some thoughts. As they read Scripture each day, they do a little bit of journaling. We call these little journals of KFCA. Nothing to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. What KFCA stands for is knowledge, faith, character, and action. Okay? Uh, and... Little questions that go along with each of those of, hey, what does God want me to know from this passage? What does God want me to believe in faith? How should my faith then change who I am inwardly, my character? And then if my character is being transformed, how should that be demonstrated with my outward actions? Right? And we see the importance of that right here in this passage because we see the breakdown of that circuit, right? The Jews had an accumulation of knowledge, but they didn't believe any of it. They could write the answer on the test, but in their heart they were not convinced that it was true. And 
And sometimes the same can be said for, for us. We can give the right answer on a test, but we don't believe that in our hearts. And in the, the quietness of our own souls, we're not convinced of the truths that we may be willing to, to articulate. Sometimes the greatest distance in the world is from here to here, right? But we see that the danger of that because we can't be deceived. What do we see in these Jewish leaders? It's not, it's not just, oh, they have this knowledge and they're, they're healthy and great. There's a spiritual sickness here. There, there is a hardness of heart that is a danger to their souls. And that's where we have to see and understand that the accumulation of knowledge, knowing more and more about the Bible without obeying it, just heaps condemnation upon ourselves. Right? Because we know what we should do or what we should not do, and yet we continue to do it. We have to understand that, and our, our goal has to be to strive to believe what God has said in his word, and then to appropriate that to our lives. And as we do that, that will be an apologetic in and of itself. The the greatest testimony to the world is your life transformed by the power of God. That's what will proclaim the loudest to your neighbors, co-workers, family members. That's what we must strive for. That's ultimately, Jesus is condemning the Jewish leaders because that's not what's taken place in their lives. But as we, we see the, the totality of this discourse, we, as we see uh, these verses this morning, and Jesus gives these guidelines of how to, how to defend our faith, how to speak of Him. We saw that, that truth needs to be validated. We saw that we can be assured that our faith can be validated. And we saw that we must call people to account for their unbelief. And Jesus had some strong, strong words, right? Of those Jewish leaders who said, yeah, they refuse to come to him. They have no love for God. They are inconsistent. They seek the wrong glory and they do not believe God's word. Quite the indictment. But, but I would ask this. Could Jesus make that same indictment to us? Are we guilty of those same heart attitudes? Absolutely. Do you know the scriptures? That's an important question. But the Jews here are not indicted. They're not condemned for not knowing the scriptures. A better and more important question is, do you love God? Jesus wrote to to a church in the book of Revelation... Actually, seven churches, but I want to highlight what he said to the church in Ephesus. A church that loved truth, but Jesus is going to have an indictment against them. It says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Man, that's great. That's a a fantastic evaluation so far, right? But then Jesus says this, But I have this against you. 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This isn't a passage just to look and say, man, how can they be so hard-hearted? How can... How can they not love God and know the scriptures and all of these things? We, do, we need to see ourselves in this. And even as a church, what can we fall into? A love for the scriptures, which is good, and that's great. But that's not an end in and of itself. What should we be striving for and, and moving towards is a deeper and greater love and appreciation for Christ thinking about and remembering all that he has done for us. Again, especially this time of year. But may we never be guilty of falling away from our first love.